This is the third episode in a series of five episodes. If you haven't already, go back and listen to the first two episodes of Escaping Limbo now to get up to speed with Mustafa's story. In April 2016, the gates of the Manus Island Detention Centre were opened to asylum seekers for the first time. The Papua New Guinea Supreme Court had unanimously ruled that the detention of asylum seekers on Manus Island violated their constitutional right to personal liberty. The court ordered the Australian and PNG governments to immediately take steps to close the centre. While they were allowed out during the day, this didn't mean they were free. The Australian government was clear that their detention was still to continue indefinitely. Five months later, government officials outlined a plan to close the facility without giving any certainty as to when the 600 asylum seekers would be forced to leave or where they would go. In 2017, they began demolishing parts of the complex. When the facility eventually closed in late 2017, 600 men who decided to stay in the camp were left without food, power and water for 21 days. This is how Moz fell ill. Why did the men decide to stay? Well, some refugees suffered violent attacks and mistreatment at the hands of Manus locals, so they felt that the abandoned detention centre was safer. Mm. But they also remained at the facility in protest. The Australian government had ordered that they move to new, smaller detention centres in a nearby town. Their decision to stay was not an easy one. Because the rainwater tanks had been drained and the pipes cut, the men were forced to scavenge for water. Moz told me that the occupants of the abandoned Manus facility were so thirsty that they were digging holes in the ground to scoop up the muddy groundwater with their bare hands. When it rained, they tried to drink from the gutters which surrounded the compounds. According to Moz, the gutters were then removed. While the relationships with some locals were fraught with conflict, there were some who tried to aid the starved refugees by throwing coconuts over the fence. We heard that their attempts to help were foiled by armed G4S guards who told the locals to get back from the fence. So guards were stopping people from saving hundreds of asylum seekers from dying of thirst. Exactly. These are clearly horrific accusations, but if you consider these events within the context of the entire migrant experience, they don't shock me. After more than three weeks, the men reluctantly left the detention facility and moved to one of the three new detention centres nearby. Despite the Australian government's assurances, the new centres were unfinished, unfit for purpose, and in many cases unsafe. A few weeks later, the men received news that their class action lawsuit against the Australian government was to be settled out of court. Even though they would be compensated tens of thousands of dollars each, evidence of human rights abuses committed against them by the government would never be made public. This is Escaping Limbo. So Warwick, one of the biggest controversies around Australia's island detention policy has been the repeated attempts by the government to deflect responsibility, cover up mistreatment and silence whistleblowers. What exactly does that look like in practice? Mm. So 
From early on in the program, the Australian government has claimed that they have no legal obligation to care for asylum seekers and refugees on Manus Island and Nauru. And the basis of that claim is that Nauru and Papua New Guinea, which is where Manus Island is, are sovereign nations. That the detention centres in those countries fall under the purview of the local governments. But basically nobody thinks that argument holds water. Under international law, the Australian government has a clear responsibility for the people in their detention centres that they simply can't bury in private contracts or foreign jurisdictions. But what the government did do was begin shrouding the program in a veil of secrecy. So in 2013, a new coalition government introduced Operation Sovereign Borders, which essentially militarised the offshore detention program. I am the commander of Operation Sovereign Borders, Australia's military-led operation to combat people smuggling and illegal boat travel to Australia. And this gave the government the right to hide what they were doing under the pretext of national security. These people smugglers, and if uh, we were at war, we wouldn't be giving out information that is of use to the enemy just because we might have an idle curiosity about it ourselves. And um, in these situations... The government also began not answering questions about what they called on-water matters. I will not comment further in relation to on-water matters. Thank you. They cancelled press conferences and made it nearly impossible for journalists to travel to the detention centres. So, for example, the Nauru government increased the price of a journalist visa to $8,000, which you paid whether you were granted the visa or not. You had to take a gamble. Eventually, every Australian that didn't work for the Department of Immigration would be denied a visa. But the Australian government also referred at least eight journalists to the Australian Federal Police for exposing serious abuse at offshore detention facilities. Which obviously flies in the face of the claim that these facilities are under the jurisdiction of a sovereign state. Why then would Australian police be involved in covering up wrongdoing at these detention centres? Mm. And obviously journalists weren't the only ones shut out of detention centres. Who else did the government block from seeing what was going on in these facilities? That's right. So the government is obliged to allow independent observers to inspect detention centres in Australia and on Christmas Island. But they blocked the Australian Human Rights Commission and a host of other organisations from inspecting the prisons on Manus Island and Nauru. And what about medical staff? Mm, well, the Department of Immigration asked that doctors working at offshore detention facilities maintain stakeholder relationships, which was code for keep the government and security contractors happy. They were essentially asking doctors to leave out details about how immigration detention and delayed processing had harmed asylum seekers. Which is really just asking them to ignore the cause of the problem that they're there to treat. I mean, just for some context, these medical staff were highly stressed and prone to burnout. Many of them began distancing themselves from the reality of these detention centres by calling asylum seekers by their boat numbers. The same boat numbers you mentioned last episode, Jackie, were intended to dehumanise asylum seekers. This, this is the purpose, is to make it easier for those working in the system to tolerate the abuse. I mean, even the doctors were traumatised by what they saw. Mm. So the government's obviously sensitive to criticism about offshore detention. 
Then in 2015, a number of doctors spoke out about Australia's detention regime. Mm. How did the government respond to that criticism? That's right. So in 2013, 15 doctors who had worked in the detention centre on Christmas Island sent a letter to their employer outlining serious concerns about the conditions on Christmas Island. And then in August 2014, Dr Peter Young, who was the chief psychiatrist for all the detention facilities, publicly accused the government of essentially torturing refugees. If we take the definition of torture to be the deliberate harming of people in order to coerce them into a desired outcome, I think it does fulfil that definition. So we're torturing? I was, I, I, I think so. I think that it's not a, a huge stretch to say that. The government actually then put him under police surveillance. And then in April 2015, another detention centre doctor, John Paul Sangaran, testified to the Australian Human Rights Commission, accusing the government of violating the UN Convention Against Torture. So in May that year, just a few weeks later, the government essentially silenced doctors and other detention centre staff using the Australian Border Force Act. The law made it a criminal offence punishable by two years in prison for anyone working in immigration detention to discuss the horrible things they saw there. The UN actually cancelled a trip to PNG and Nauru because they were concerned they would expose staff to criminal sanctions by the Australian government just by asking them questions about the facilities. This essentially meant there was no oversight of the private security companies that were running these facilities in countries who already had a far from squeaky clean record on human rights and democratic process. So how did the medical fraternity respond to this? Not well. The Australian Medical Association, the Medical Students Lobby, the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners all spoke out against the law. And on the day the law came into effect, more than 40 detention centre workers, most of them doctors, signed an open letter to the government criticising the conditions in offshore detention facilities. They wrote, Standing by and watching harmful care, child abuse and gross violations of human rights is not ethically justifiable. And then they essentially dared the government to prosecute them so that they could have their day in court. And did the government prosecute them? No, no charges were brought. And then in August that year, doctors leaked the medical files of asylum seekers to the media in direct breach of the gag. In those files were descriptions of physical abuse, sexual abuse, child abuse and self-harm. Still, the government didn't prosecute anyone. I mean, doctors take a Hippocratic oath. So to be told that they basically can't do their job that they have to turn a blind eye to the suffering of people they're sworn to care for, all to save the government from a little bit of embarrassment, was just never gonna fly. Dr. Sangaran, the doctor who spoke to the Human Rights Commission in 2015, just before the government passed the gag order, argued that if the government weren't gonna let doctors do their job, then the doctors were really just there to make the torture and mistreatment of refugees look legitimate and respectable basically to make it look like they were helping the people that they were abusing. So what's become of that gag order? So in 2016, Doctors for Refugees challenged the Border Force Act in federal court, and the government eventually backed down and exempted doctors from the gag. Okay, so did anything change? 
No. Even though doctors could speak out, nothing changed for the refugees. Other detention centre staff are still to this day prohibited from exposing abuse. And that's on top of all the other things that I've just outlined. This web of secrecy has decimated any semblance of transparency and oversight in offshore detention, which allowed the government to get away with gross injustices against refugees like Moz. Despite the government's best efforts to hide the atrocities committed on Manus and Nauru, Australians still know enough to take their outrage to the polls. In August 2018, the Liberal government lost a seat they'd held for nearly 120 years to independent Karen Phelps. Dr Phelps, a GP with no political experience, won the Wentworth by-election by promising to bring sick refugees in island detention to Australia for treatment. Dr Phelps's law gained the support of the opposition and crossbench. A typically tight-lipped government began leaking classified information to the media about the perceived risks involved with Dr Phelps's law. This is the same government who had threatened whistleblowers with jail, and just a few weeks earlier had directed the Australian Federal Police to raid the homes and offices of journalists to investigate leaks of classified information. In February 2019, Phelps's Medivac bill passed through the federal parliament. It was the first time a sitting government lost a vote in the House of Representatives in nearly a century. The new legislation set out the conditions by which sick people on Nauru and Manus Island could be transferred to Australia for appropriate medical treatment that they could not access on the island nations. To be eligible, the patient needed medical approval from two or more treating doctors to be evacuated. It also provides for the preservation of the family unit, ensuring that any members of the same family are also transferred. The government reluctantly appointed a panel of doctors to assess Medivac applications. Cabinet ministers expressed their frustrations over the perceived bias of the doctor's stance on refugee welfare. Australia, we have already provided significant medical assistance to people on Nauru and Manus. Anybody who tells you that people on Manus and Nauru haven't been provided with the best medical assistance possible are lying to you. And you see through these They claimed the doctor's decisions may result in the transfer of dangerous people to the mainland. Uh, we have people that can come to our country from Manus or Nauru, uh, people that have been charged with child sex offences, people that have been charged uh, or allegations around uh, serious offences, uh, including murder. Due to this perceived national security threat, amendments to the bill gave the relevant minister the power to reject a request for medical evacuation. If a request was denied by the minister, it would be sent to the independent medical panel. The panel could override a minister's refusal on health grounds, but the minister still had the final veto if there were security issues surrounding the patient. The minister could stop a medical evacuation if they disagreed with the clinical assessment, suspected that the transfer of a person to Australia would be prejudicial to security, or if they knew that the transferee had a substantial criminal record. All these references to, to rapists and paedophiles coming to Australia, simply not true. Well, they haven't yet been able to identify a single person on either Manus or Nauru who have been convicted of any of those crimes. 
Um, and, and yet the they... government also warned that the Medivac bill would result in a huge influx of boat arrivals because it gave asylum seekers access to Australia. Um, this parliament has already tipped its hand enough to the people smugglers. I won't be doing that in compromising our operations and how we now address the consequences of what this parliament is doing to our borders. Secondly, this was despite the fact that the bill specifically did not allow for new boat arrivals to be medically evacuated to Australia. Nor did it allow any asylum seeker to leave detention while on the mainland. But that didn't stop the government spending $185 million reopening the Christmas Island Detention Centre. We have approved uh, putting in place the reopening of the Christmas Island detention facilities and a series of compounds there, both to do with the... Boat arrivals remained steady and not a single asylum seeker went to Christmas Island. Many accused the government of staging a political stunt in the lead up to an election, trying to scare the public into voting for them. Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton said he also feared the process, if taken advantage of, posed a threat to the Australian public's welfare. Uh, I don't want to see Australians who are in waiting lines at public hospitals kicked off those waiting lines because people off Nauru and Manus are now going to access those health services. I don't want to see... At this stage, there were more than 700 public hospitals in Australia, with more than 61,000 beds and a further 630 private hospitals with more than 33,000 beds. Just 70 of the nearly 1,000 asylum seekers remaining on Manus and Nauru were estimated to need a medical evacuation. Dutton also complained in February that the hotel detention program would be extremely costly to the taxpayer. Uh, because this comes at a cost of hundreds of millions of dollars. If you're accommodating people off Nauru and Manus in hotels in Melbourne, Sydney or Brisbane, it comes at a significant cost because you've got guards who are associated with that. Once transferred, the legislation states that immigration detention must continue until the time of removal from Australia or until the minister determines that immigration detention is no longer required. In other words, Medivac is not an escape. And here we are. Large groups of refugees are still held in hotels 19 months later. On the next episode of Escaping Limbo, the government began making plans to repeal the Medivac law that brought Moz to the Mandra Hotel. I don't like holding things back like this, but when I say I can't discuss it publicly due to national security concerns, I am being 100% honest to you. Someone is misleading the Senate. Some of these detainees have a history of child sex offences or violent crimes or proven links to criminal organisations such as outlaw motorcycle gangs. Thousands of innocent people like Moz will be tarred with the same brush. They blame us that they are child abusers, they are bad people. No, I'm not bad people. The judge found that the minister engaged in criminal conduct by refusing to release the man. We've mistreated refugees for too long and this would breach their basic rights even further. Escaping Limbo is produced by Warwick Jones and presented by me, Jacqueline Stanley. Theme music is by Mustafa Azimutabar. And a special thanks to Tito and Janik. <laughs>